It's the early hours of the 1st of January, 1989, and the city of Los Angeles is starting to quiet down after the rowdy celebrations that welcomed the new year. The fireworks have stopped, the parties have ended, and the few people left on the streets are only trying to make their way home. Everything is calming down in the City of Angels. But not quite everything. While most of the city has been enjoying themselves, it's just another night at work for the emergency services. And as you may imagine, New Year's Eve is one of their busier nights. So it's not too much of a surprise when a call arrives at 911 dispatchers with details of a disturbance. The only surprise, perhaps, is where the call is coming from. The disturbance is not in one of LA's many rough neighbourhoods, but it's in fashionable, upscale Brentwood, home to some of the city's wealthiest people and several celebrities. The dispatcher puts out an alert for any available West LA unit to attend what sounds like a horrific scene. The dispatcher can hear the sounds of a woman screaming and perhaps being beaten. Within minutes, policeman John Edwards and his partner arrive at the scene. It's a large gated house with an intercom button to the side of the entrance. Edwards steps out of his patrol car and pushes on the button, squinting through the darkness to see if he can see anything. What he sees almost immediately is a blonde woman wearing nothing but a bra and tracksuit bottoms, sprinting towards him as the gate opens. The woman practically jumps on him and wraps her arms around him screaming the same thing over and over. He's going to kill me. He's going to kill me. Policeman John Edwards awkwardly pats the woman on the back and asks, Who's going to kill you, ma'am? The woman looks at him and gives a two-lettered response. OJ. Hello Ministry of History fans and welcome back to the podcast. I'm here bringing you the final instalment of series two which has focused on historical scandal and we're ending on a big one. It's O.J. Simpson and his murder trial. A much-loved American football star and actor was charged with the murder of his wife and her friend. The resulting trial split America in two, exposing its deep racial divide. Now I've got a lot to get through here, so I'll just be very quick and ask you to leave a review preferably five stars if you have a spare moment 
It really is such an important way of getting the podcast to grow. I also just want to quickly point you toward my donation page on the Buy Me A Coffee website. As I've said countless times before, I don't have delusions of becoming fabulously wealthy by doing what I do, but I do need to pay for equipment costs and overheads. Anything you can donate really would be hugely appreciated. The link to my Buy Me A Coffee donation page is in the description for this podcast. Finally, don't forget to check out the blog and my Twitter page. The blog is the Ministry of History on Google and it's the top result. The Twitter page is at Ministry History, all one word with no of in the middle. There, I told you I'd be quicker this week. That's all the boring stuff out of the way. Let's get on to the story at hand. Now, the stated aim of the Ministry of History is to take a look at some of history's lesser known stories and people. But I'm fully aware that, like Watergate, which we covered at the start of this series, the O.J. Simpson scandal does not fall into that category. But the beauty about running my own blog and podcast is that I have total editorial control and I reserve the right to take a look at some well-known stories if they interest me. And just like the Watergate scandal, this is a story that genuinely fascinates me. Granted, it involves a horrific double murder, the ending of two young lives, so perhaps you could accuse me of being a bit ghoulish for being fascinated by it. But I would argue that the whole saga is about so much more than those double murders. This is a story about wealth, celebrity, race, misogyny and tragedy. It's a story where all of these themes meet and a story that says much about modern society's attitudes to all of those themes. Having said all that, I don't want to lose sight of the fact that two people lost their lives here. Two people who loved and were loved. Two people who had so much to live for, who were cut down in their primes. I will be discussing so many other things in this episode, so I just want to say at the outset, that I have tried to be as respectful as possible about the two victims, to present them as real people, rather than just characters in a crazy story. I should also say at the outset, that I personally don't think there's much doubt at all about OJ Simpson's guilt. I do want to paint a wide-reaching story, But I don't think there's any point in me trying to pretend that I'm impartial. I think OJ is guilty as sin, quite frankly. Following on from that point, though I am going to detail OJ Simpson's life, I don't want that to be misconstrued as me glorifying a murderer or not paying attention to his victims. If you've been listening to previous episodes of this podcast, you'll know that one of the things I like to do 
is really explore the background of the main people involved in a story to see if that background can make us any wiser as to why they acted the way they did. And I just don't think you can truly understand these murders if you don't understand O.J. Simpson, the man. His life story and his character traits are incredibly relevant to this story and I believe they need to be explored rather than ignored. So without further ado, let's get right to it. Let's take you back to the beginning of O.J. Simpson's life. Orenthal James Simpson was born on the 9th of July 1947 to a working class black family in San Francisco. His was a tough upbringing. His parents were originally from Louisiana but they'd moved west in search of more opportunity. Unfortunately, they still struggled to make ends meet. And although the racism in California wasn't as overt as it was in Louisiana, and it wasn't built into the legal system like it was in the Jim Crow South, it was still suffocating. What also didn't help young OJ was that his parents split up when he was only five. He and his three siblings were raised by their mother. It was kind of an open secret that Simpson's father, Jimmy Simpson, was gay, although he only properly came out in the 1980s. I generally believe that people who are known throughout history show when they're young the traits that are going to make them famous. We've already discussed in this series how Richard Nixon's shyness and difficulty fitting in were evident in his childhood, and he is just one of many examples. That same phenomenon applies to O.J. Simpson in whom we can see some key personality traits from an early age. The first is that he has a tendency to be a troublemaker and he had regular brushes with the law for petty crimes such as theft. But a more important trait that emerges in O.J. Simpson's childhood is that he is supremely confident to the point that it almost borders on obnoxious arrogance. He was the natural leader in his group of friends. He oozed charm and charisma from a very early age. He could talk himself out of almost any situation, including those brushes with the law. Even white police officers couldn't help but be dazzled by the slick, eloquent young OJ. And linked to this confidence is a firm belief in himself, a belief that he can be the best at whatever he sets his mind to. And of course, what OJ Simpson really set his mind to was football. That's football of the American variety, if you're listening outside of the States. 
From a very early age, OJ Simpson was convinced that he was going to be one of the top football players in the country. In 1967, when he was 19, he joined the University of Southern California in Los Angeles, and it was here that his football career really took off. Simpson was a big man, six foot two, 15 stone, but he was also blessed with incredible pace and stamina. Opponents who were quick enough to catch him weren't strong enough to tackle him, and those who were strong enough to tackle him weren't quick enough to catch him. He was the star man, and he won the prestigious Heisman Trophy, which is awarded to the best college player, in 1968. His transfer to the professional game was never in doubt, and he was snapped up by the Buffalo Bills in 1969. I want to return at this juncture to that theme of personality traits being emergent during this time, what we might call Simpson's young adulthood. The first is his brazen unfaithfulness in marriage. You see, OJ had got married at the age of 19 to a woman named Marguerite Whiteley, who was 18. They had three children together although one of those children tragically died in a swimming pool as a toddler. But Simpson wasn't the type of man to settle down properly. He was tall, he was handsome, he was eloquent and charming. I mean, make no mistake, he was a catch. He carried on several affairs during his 12-year marriage to Marguerite, including the affair that would end their marriage with a young waitress called Nicole Brown. The second thing we begin to see during this time is OJ Simpson's love of the spotlight, of glamour, and a slow turning his back on his humble origins. In a 2017 BBC documentary, a few of OJ's childhood friends note how he started to change during his college football days. It's not that he abandoned his old friends, he always loved having them around, even at the height of his fame. But he also didn't try to hide the fact that he enjoyed the new company he had found, namely wealthy, well-connected, white people. It's interesting at this point to talk about O.J. Simpson in the context of race. I've no doubt you're already aware how important that issue is going to become in this story. Of course, this is the late 1960s, the height of the civil rights movement, a time where there's rising militarism among some elements of the African-American community. So where does O.J. stand in all of this? Well, it probably depended on when you asked him. 
Simpson seems to have been quite ambiguous about the question of race. Happy to talk about the struggles he faced as a young black man, but equally happy that he was adored and idolised in polite white society. There's nothing inherently wrong with that, of course. He's only enjoying his success. But in that BBC documentary I just referenced, it's hard to avoid the sense that his childhood friends were irritated by the fact that he had become so cosy with LA's wealthy, influential white people, particularly after his retirement. Like I just said, despite Simpson's apparent indifference towards the subject of race and identity, it's a subject that's going to become incredibly important in this story. As we're going to see, when his neck was on the line, OJ didn't hesitate to portray himself as an unfairly targeted black man. His professional career, 10 seasons with the Bills and one with the San Francisco 49ers, was a successful one. And by the time he retired in 1979, O.J. Simpson was a household name in America. And he wasn't just known for his football. Toward the end of his career, he had started to dabble in acting, appearing in a hugely successful ad campaign for Hertz car rental from the mid-1970s onwards. It was predominantly acting that he turned his mind to when he retired from football and he appeared in films such as The Naked Gun in the 1980s. He also worked as a football pundit during this time. What he also set his mind to after he retired was his love life. And by that, I mean that he had become infatuated with one woman in particular. I've already touched on the fact that his first marriage ended after he had an intense affair with a waitress. Well, it's time I introduced you to that waitress. It's time I introduced you to Nicole Brown. Nicole was born on the 19th of May, 1959, in Frankfurt, Germany, daughter of a German mother and an American father. The family moved to Los Angeles when Nicole was a toddler, and in many ways, she grew into the stereotypical, all-American, Californian girl. She surfed, she danced, she was strikingly beautiful, with long blonde hair and big brown eyes, and she was named homecoming queen at high school. She was naturally reserved, but quietly driven, and she harboured ambitions of becoming a photographer. In the summer of 1977, when she was 18, she was working as a waitress at a high-end restaurant in Beverly Hills when a certain O.J. Simpson walked in, and he was hooked straight away. Uh, 
OJ may have been famous, one of the most recognisable faces in the country in fact, but Nicole Brown had no idea who he was. She was one of four daughters, and as one of her younger sisters later put it, quote, We were a house of girls. We didn't watch football. We went to the beach. Nicole may have recognised him from a Hertz advert or two, but really, she had no idea how much of a star he was. It's possible that this only served to make Simpson more determined to win her over. And that's exactly what he did. He absolutely swept her off her feet and they were dating within a week of meeting each other. Nicole's friends and family were a little sceptical of the relationship at first. She was only 18 after all. He was 30, already married, with children. But Nicole was adamant that they had something special. And to be fair, they probably did. Both OJ and Nicole's closest confidence attests that the two of them genuinely loved each other at least for a time. Of course, the biggest loser in this blossoming relationship was Marguerite Simpson, who divorced OJ in 1979. Nicole and OJ eventually got married in 1985 and had two children together. They settled into a lavish home on Rockingham Avenue in Brentwood, one of LA's most exclusive neighbourhoods. Nicole devoted herself to her children, as well as dabbling in art and photography ventures, while OJ was still the much-loved actor and football pundit. Sounds pretty perfect, right? Well, anyone who knew the couple intimately knew that their marriage was anything but perfect. For a start, OJ Simpson hadn't left his philandering ways behind. He still had numerous affairs and made virtually no attempt to hide them. In fact, in that BBC documentary I keep mentioning, one of his friends even suggests that he actually went out of his way to rub Nicole's nose in it as if he wanted to say, look at me, I'm OJ Effin Simpson. I do what I like, and I like what I do. What are you going to do about it? Nicole retained a brave public face, but privately, she was desperately upset at her husband's infidelity. But worse than that, O.J. Simpson was violent. Behind the easy charm and the movie star smile was a possessive, controlling, manipulative and abusive man. Nicole would later confide to her close friends that O.J. had beat her regularly, locked her in closets even raped her. It was a classic situation of domestic violence and OJ Simpson was a classic domestic abuser. 
he would tell Nicole what she could wear, how to present herself. He became enraged when she questioned where he had been, but he rarely let her go anywhere without him. OJ Simpson was a narcissist who craved control over his wife. Nicole Brown called the police at least seven times before 1989, but each time OJ Simpson was able to talk his way out of trouble with the police and with his wife. Nicole felt unable to escape the relationship for a number of reasons. She didn't want to break up her family. She was aware that her parents and some of her sisters relied on OJ for financial support. And she didn't want to go through a divorce that was sure to be very public. And just as important as all of that, she was genuinely manipulated by OJ believing simultaneously that he was capable of changing and that their difficulties were her fault. Just as OJ Simpson was a classic domestic abuser, so Nicole Brown Simpson was a classic domestic abuse victim. As we saw at the very start of this episode, things really came to a head on New Year's Eve 1988. After hosting a party in their Brentwood home, in the early hours of New Year's Day, the couple got into an almighty argument and OJ Simpson subjected Nicole to one of his most vicious beatings yet. And this time, he wasn't able to talk his way out of trouble, at least not immediately. John Edwards, the officer dispatched to Rockingham Avenue that morning, attempted to arrest him, but made the mistake of allowing OJ to go back inside to get dressed. Simpson leapt into his car and sped away into the night, and Edwards was left to take Nicole to the police station, where her injuries were photographed and a report was filed on the incident. It wasn't long before the press got wind of the story. But they barely laid a glove on OJ. Invited to give his version of events, Simpson dismissed the incident, claiming they'd both had too much to drink and got into an argument like any other couple. No big deal, to use a direct quote from him. But the police thought otherwise. Despite the protestations of Nicole herself, again, we see more signs of her here as a domestic abuse victim defending her abuser. Prosecutors pressed on with the case and OJ Simpson didn't contest it. So what was his punishment? Did he go to jail? No. For the vicious beating of his wife, Simpson was sentenced to 120 hours of community service. And what service did he provide for the community as part of his sentence? Well, he organised an exclusive celebrity golf tournament. 
By the summer of 1989, O.J. Simpson was out of legal trouble without even a slap on the wrist, and he was back together with Nicole. He felt as invincible as ever. Fortunately, this time, Simpson's confidence was misplaced. Nicole may have got back with him for now, but that New Year's incident really had changed things. For the first time, Nicole started to imagine a life without her husband. And frankly, she realised she needed to imagine a life without him. She finally separated from OJ in the early 90s and settled into her own apartment. Of course, she was still a young woman, only in her early 30s at this point, and friends describe her as incredibly happy during this time. She was meeting friends, pursuing a career in photography, she was even going on dates with new men. She filed for divorce from OJ Simpson in 1992. But the shadow of her estranged husband still loomed over her. Possessive as ever, Simpson stalked her, prowling outside her apartment and turning up uninvited when she was out. He didn't appear to care that he had a new girlfriend or that he could have near enough any woman he wanted. Nicole had insulted him. She'd had the audacity to challenge him. She'd shown him that he couldn't control her and that she could be happy without him. All of that infuriated him. And although he still maintained his friendly public persona, the O.J. Simpson of the early 1990s was a bitter man, consumed by anger and jealousy. Incredibly, the couple actually got back together briefly in 1993, but by the beginning of 1994, the relationship was finally, well and truly, over. Nicole Brown was rediscovering her happy, single life, while O.J. Simpson was spiralling out of control. And that was part one of the O.J. Simpson scandal. We've just set the scene there of how things stood in the first half of 1994. In the next episode, we'll discuss the shocking, horrific murders themselves and the trial that split America in two. Before we go, I just need to reference that BBC documentary I kept quoting. It's called OJ Made in America and it's produced, as you've listened to, by the BBC. You can find it on BBC iPlayer. <laughs>